We're beginning Romans 9 this morning and continuing uh, in this letter that Paul wrote to Christians in Rome, to the church, both Jews and Gentile Christians. And um, would you join me this morning in reading along as I read Romans 9, 1 through 18. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, they, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. The word of the Lord. You know, one of the interesting things that Paul does in his writing is that he answers rhetorical questions as he writes. You may notice this as we've been reading through this letter together. Um, in other words, he like, it's like he anticipates the questions that readers will be asking as he's teaching. It's like he thinks, I, I know what they're going to say in response to what I'm saying, and then he tries to answer those things as he goes along. And, and sometimes he'll actually pose the question. Um, and, and let me encourage you this morning, we're going to be looking at this passage um, thoroughly, so just keep your Bible open in front of you. Um, but he does this in, in places like verse 14, where he says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? So, so Paul is anticipating that as people are reading what he's writing, or as they're hearing it read, that they're going to have this question, wait a second, Paul, are you saying that God is unjust? And so he tries to answer these things as he goes along. 
So just hold on to that thought today, because here in chapter 9, Paul is trying to answer what I think he thinks is a question that his readers will be asking. And, And so just hold on to that for a moment. One of the things for us to remember here is that Paul, in in the Roman letter, is probably not trying to give us this like complete or absolutely thorough theological treatise. What Paul is really trying to do in Romans is unpack the gospel. This is where he started all the way back in chapter 1. Remember he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to save all who believe. And so throughout this, as he's talked about our sin, as he's talked about justification, as he's talked about sanctification, Paul is trying to explain his understanding of the gospel of Jesus to his readers. And, And today, as we continue down that road, he's also trying to unpack for us some of his theology. And and when I say theology, I don't mean some academic discipline. When I say theology, I just mean on a very base level, he's trying to unpack for us what he believes about God. Because that's what theology is at the foundation. It's just simply what we believe about God. What do you think of when you think of God? Because that's incredibly important. And, And it whether you realize it or not, shapes a lot of your spiritual life. The, the mental picture you have of God shapes a lot of your spiritual life. So if your mental picture of God, for example, is that God is just this angry guy up in the sky who's just waiting to smite people, then you better believe that affects your spiritual life. If, if your picture of God is that he's kind of this hippy-dippy, I love everybody, everything's great, If that's your picture, then that colors your spiritual life. So how we understand God is incredibly important. Paul gets that, and Paul wants to unpack for us how he sees God. And what we're going to see is that he does that by looking at Scripture. The big question that he's addressing today in chapter 9, or at least in this part of chapter 9, is a question that I said he thinks people will be asking, and the question is this, what about the Jews? What about the Jews? Now, why is he asking that question? Let's go back real quick to chapter 8. This is where we've been the last couple of weeks. In chapter 8, we spent a lot of time talking about verses 28, 29, 30, and 31. And let me just read those again for us real quick. Here here are those famous words from chapter 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Remember, a big part of chapter 8 was Paul saying that through Christ and his sacrifice, you haven't just been saved from death and hell, you have also now become children of God. If you have faith in Christ, you haven't just been saved from terrible things, it's even better you've now been adopted into his family. You're now co-heirs with Christ. That's what he said. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So here are all of these great things that are coming for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. And then he said, what can we say to these things except Man, if God is for us, who can be against us, right? Like, 
that's the only response that we can have. If God is God, if God is the creator of all things and he's on our side and he's actually preordained that these good things would happen for those who are his children, and if he's on our team, like what, what, what bad thing could befall us? Like what bad thing could happen to us? So Paul ended chapter 8 by eloquently stating that nothing can separate us from God, right? If we are his children, there's nothing that can change that. There's nothing that can stop that. We cannot, and he goes through this whole list, if you remember, neither this nor that nor this nor that nor this nor nothing can separate us from the love of God. But if all of that is true, then Paul What do you do with the fact that so many of the Jews did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah? Right? When you consider the history of the Old Testament, all of these prophecies that have come through Israel, even some of the things we read earlier today, right? That that these would be the people of God, that the world would be blessed through the lineage of Abraham. All of these promises that have come before, right? If Jesus is that promised Messiah, if Jesus is that new David, if he is that king that was foretold by the Old Testament prophets, if all of that is true, then how do we explain the fact both and today there are so many Jews that don't believe it, who who don't have faith in Christ, that he is this long foretold son of God, Messiah King. And so here's how Paul answers that question. He answers it in two ways. First, he tells us of his own grief concerning those who don't believe. We'll look at that in just a second. But then he also tells us what he believes about God. So he tells us of his grief concerning these things. And then he tells us what he believes about God. And what you will see is that what Paul believes about God is not arbitrary. Right? He hasn't made it up. It's not based on his feelings. It's not based on something the culture has told him about God. It's not based on just something maybe his parents told him about God. It is based squarely on Scripture. And listen, and this is so important, when we base our understanding of God on the Bible, when we base our understanding of God on Scripture, we need to be prepared for some difficulty because Scripture presents God for who He really is, doesn't it? Somebody once said that God created man in His own image and then we return the favor. And we love to do that. We, we love to remake God in our own We love to remake God in the way that we see fit or in in the way that we want him to be. And yet the Bible doesn't present him as we might hope he would be or want him to be. The Bible presents him as he really is. Let me change my mics and see this any better. Check, check. Maybe. So the Bible presents him as he is really is. And who he really is, guys, is not a human being, right? God is not a human being. That, that, that probably doesn't come as a newsflash to you, but yet think about art throughout the centuries. Think about images of God, right? How is he depicted? 
he's depicted as a man. He, he's got the beard. He's got the long flowing hair. This is how we think of him. Honestly, he looks more like Zeus. If you've ever seen like classical pictures of Zeus, that, that's how even we today think of God. He's up there on a cloud, maybe with a lightning bolt, right? That's how we think of him, but that's, that's a very pagan image of, of who God is and what God looks like. So, so God is not a human being. He doesn't operate in the way human beings operate. He doesn't follow our systems, our structures. He doesn't define things in the way that we define things. And because of this, when we really encounter the God of the Bible, we're going to be undoubtedly challenged by him because it's impossible for us to understand him fully. He wants to be known by us but yet it's impossible for us to fully know him. But we can know what he's like. Look with me at verse 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. Remember, Paul has just said, nothing can separate us from the love of God. We're more than conquerors, neither depth nor life, all those things. I'm not lying. I'm speaking the truth in Christ My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. But here's the thing. I have great sorrow. I have an unceasing anguish in my heart. For for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. It's Paul saying, man, if, if somehow I could take take their place in the way that Christ has taken our place. Like if there was some way that I could be accursed so that they could be saved, I would do that in a heartbeat is what Paul's saying. Like if there was a way for me to be sacrificed so so that they could learn the truth and wake up to the truth so that they could have faith in Jesus Christ, then, then I would be on board for that. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Israelites and he says to them belong the adoption, the pro, like the glory, the covenants, The giving of the law, the worship, the promises, all of these things. Like, they're the source of the patriarchs, the guys we were talking about earlier, like Isaac and Jacob. How does God describe himself to Moses? He says, who is he? He's the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Who do I say that you are, God, when I go to those people? Tell them, I am. Meaning, there's nothing that is, that is without me. That's what John's gospel says, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. I am. Life, air, light, I am. Tell them that's who sent you, the God of the patriarchs. All of these things come from the line of Abraham. Verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. It is through this Jewish heritage that they have come. He is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But then, look at verse 6. But it's not as though the Word of God has failed. What does he say? For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So you could call that Paul's thesis statement here. And here's the case he's making. And it's this case that, look, yes, there is like this physical Israel 
in that there are all of these descendants that we can trace back to Abraham. He calls them children of the flesh. Then there's like this spiritual Israel. These are those whom Paul says are children of the promise. And so it's like there are these two groups, children of the flesh, children of the promise. And Paul's point here is that it is God who decides what's what and who's who. It's God who decides what's what and who's who. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And that's like a like what like what are you saying? Look at verse 7. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Not all are children of Abraham even though they may be children of Abraham. But, and he quotes the Old Testament here, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So if you remember the story of Abraham, Abraham and his wife Sarah did not have any children. God comes along and makes promises to him. He establishes a covenant with Abraham. And as a part of that covenant, what he says is, no, your wife Sarah is going to conceive and bear a child. That will happen. But before that ever happened, if you remember, Abraham had a child with Sarah's maid, Hagar. And that child was named Ishmael. So technically, Ishmael is the firstborn son of Abraham. But then he has this son named Isaac by his wife Sarah. And even though Ishmael is his offspring, even though Ishmael is a descendant of Abraham, and even though he's technically Abraham's firstborn, God ordains that Abraham's line would continue not through Ishmael, but through Isaac. And so what the Scripture paints for us is this notion that this this isn't something that just kind of randomly happened, but this is something God orchestrated. This is something God ordained that this would happen in this way. And so to use Paul's language that we saw back in chapter 8 and talked about, God has elected. God has chosen that this would happen in this particular way. Look with me at verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And and don't miss there that now he inserts this phrase, children of God. And remember, in chapter 8, he spent so much time talking about the fact that because of Jesus' sacrifice, we have the opportunity not just to be saved, but to become children of God. So verse 8, Paul says, just because you are Jewish by heritage, just because maybe in some way you can trace your lineage back to Abraham does not mean you will be saved from death and hell and become a child of God. Instead, it is children of the promise. Well, what promise? Verse 9, for this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So not just any promise, but the promise, capital P, the covenant that God made with Abraham, which wasn't just that Abraham would have children, but that his wife would have children, and that God would bless those descendants and make them a blessing to the nations, as numerous as the stars in the sky. But God's election didn't stop there. With Abraham and Sarah, he says, verse 10, and not only so, but also when Rebekah, Isaac's wife, When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet even born and had done nothing either good or bad, 
in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. So even in the life of Abraham's son Isaac and his offspring, God chooses the younger child, the one who comes out second. He chooses the younger child to be the one through whom Abraham's lineage continues. This this children of the promise, this this like spiritual lineage, it it is through Abraham. his son Jacob, that this would continue. And, and verse 13 can be a little bit jarring, right? This idea that there's one that God loved, but one that he hated, right? I thought God loves everybody, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God is love, This is where a quick word study can be helpful to us. In in English, we have one word, love, and and that word is not nuanced, or it is kind of heavily nuanced, I guess you could say. I I love you guys in that I care about you, right? And I feel some affection towards you, and I, I want you to flourish, and I want your lives to go well, and I want things to be good for you. I love you, and I, I love my children, and I love my wife and my family, and I love pizza, right? Those are not the same thing. It's not the same kind of love, but we use the same word to talk about those things, right? And, and so this, this can get a little confusing to us. Um, The Greeks had a number of different words for love. You've probably heard some of these before. Philos is is that word for brotherly love, like the city of Philadelphia. That's where that word comes from. The Greeks had eros, which is like the the romantic love. Uh, Greeks even had a word philotia, which is is a word for like self-love. But then there's this word agape. You've probably heard this word before. Agape is the love in Scripture, the Greek word that is associated with God in the Bible. And it's sometimes interpreted as the word affection. It's sometimes interpreted as the word charity. Sometimes interpreted as the word love. When the Bible says God is love, that is the word that's being used. And many scholars, including guys like C.S. Lewis, think that one of the primary characteristics of agape is that it is self-sacrificing. That one of the ways that characterizes God's unique love is that it is self-sacrificing. On the other hand, the word that is interpreted hate is also the same word that Jesus uses in Luke 14 when he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own mother and father and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So what is Jesus saying there? Is he saying you, you have to like want the worst for your mother or father? That, that you that you hate them and you want to be separated from them or you hope they die or like hatred for us is, is not as heavily a nuanced word as the word love is. Hate for us is a very kind of vicious thing in our culture. And, and yet, if that's what Jesus meant, then Jesus is there teaching something counter to the Ten Commandments, right? That we would honor our mother and father. So, no, no, no. What he's saying there is your love for God should be so great and should be primary and so supreme in your life that your love for anything else pales in comparison to it. 
And so the best translation of that Greek word is our English word hate. But it doesn't mean I want to see violence done to my mother and father. It means I I want to love God more. I want God to be preeminent in my life. And so when it says God loves one and hates the other, what it means is God loves one more. Or God favors one more over the other. We're rational, reasonable, fair-minded people, and so, of course, we ask why. Why is that the case? Why did God do that? And Paul's basic answer is this. Well, that's what he chose to do. That's what he chose to do. Why did God do that? That's what he chose to do. Look again at verse 14. Paul anticipates this question. What shall we say then? Has God done something unjust? Is there some kind of injustice on God's part? What's happening here? Paul says, by no means. Don't be confused. Remember what we said earlier, God is not a human being. He's not playing by our human rules of fairness. Because our view of fairness is often fairly murky. In fact, if we believe that we are all sinners in need of a Savior, like if we're deserving of nothing more than death before a holy God, then then God has actually done a supremely unfair thing by sending His Son Jesus to die, because that's not what we deserve. And yet that is what He's done for us. So that, that doesn't really correspond to our human notions of fairness. Praise God that He's not fair. Praise, not, praise God that He hasn't given us exactly what we deserve. So, so fairness is not like this characteristic that we can describe to, or, or ascribe to him, but justice absolutely is. God can be, at the same time, extremely unfair and supremely just, and that's exactly what we see in the gospel. It is not fair that we would be saved from our sin. That's not what we deserve. That's not what we're due. But yet, God has given his only son so that something supremely unfair could happen for our good and for his glory. But in dying for our sins, Jesus has taken on the penalty that was due to us. So justice has been served. The justice that is due, like the payment that is due for our sin, it's been paid. So God is supremely just, even while at the same time being supremely unfair. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on who I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So Paul's not telling us what he thinks God is like or what he feels God is like. He is giving us God's own words. And what God here is describing about himself is the fact that he is sovereign. He is sovereign. Sovereign is simply a word that means supreme or ultimate. Or to put it in extremely simplistic terms, God does whatever he wants because he is God. Because he made all of this. He spoke it into existence. To use the language of scripture, he's the potter. right? He's the one who molds the clay. 
Paul will make the case, the potter can do whatever he wants to do. If the potter wants to make a cup, he makes a cup. If, if the potter says, I don't like this cup, he can smash it. Why can he do that? Because he's the potter. He's the creator of all things. God is sovereign. God does what he wants. We talk all the time about God's will, God's plans. This is what we're talking about here. He is the author of everything. He is all-powerful. And while he desires to be known by you, and that's the whole point of the Bible, the Bible is God's revelation of himself to humanity. While he wants to be known by you, God is also not overly concerned that you would understand him fully. Even in our own lives, when we're intimate with him and when we are growing in maturity and sanctification, right? Even when our lives are moving in a forward direction, we don't see his whole plan, do we? Right? The word we used to describe this or the phrase we used to describe this is progressive revelation. That God gives us little pieces of the puzzle as we move forward. Because it's not just about the destination, it's also about the journey. And that may sound trite. But it is so true. God is concerned with the whole thing. He's not just concerned with what you become. He is concerned with who you are and where you are right now and what's going on in your life because he is shaping you through the circumstances of your life and the events of your life. And what we need to understand and take away from this is that he is not removed from the circumstances and events of your life. No, he's active and present in the circumstances and events of your life. Paul also points us to the story of the Egyptian Pharaoh, the one who was king at the time when the Israelites were enslaved in the nation of Egypt, when he sent Moses back to Pharaoh to say to him, let my people go. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So so Paul's example here is that God does this in a positive way, and God does this in negative ways, but that are ultimately positive ways because they're suiting his purposes, right? So even with somebody like Pharaoh, an evil king, God says, no, 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 I put him there. I raised him up to that position for my purposes, And I raised him up to that position so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So God somehow is so far above all of this. And and his ways are so much higher than even we can imagine, I think. That God is able to orchestrate things across spans of time. So that even putting evil people in positions of power and leadership, God can ultimately work out his purposes for his glory in ways that we're not even aware of and can't even grasp because they're so grand, like the scope of God's plans are so grand. To think that we could ever even fully grasp it is is impossible. So Paul's telling us very clearly, based on Scripture, that he sees God as being divinely active. Divinely active not only in our lives, but also in the sociopolitical events of our world. And his divine activity is shaping and orchestrating events in our lives and in our world. And that he does these things not randomly, but in accordance with his holy will. This view of God as being divinely active is opposed 
to another popular view of God, which is that he is all-powerful and all-knowing, but he's mostly hands-off when it comes to -to day-to-day life. You know, at some point in time, he spoke things into being, and he's up there now, he knows what's going on, and he knows what will happen in the future, but he's not really affecting anything. He's just kind of letting things play out. And so unless you maybe pray for something specific, God's not really like stepping into anything or doing anything major. The world's broken. The world's ultimately going to end. And so that's all just kind of naturally taking its course. Paul rejects that idea, I think. To illustrate Paul's view, the late uh, theologian R.C. Sproul, who was a teacher and pastor and author, he taught on this topic all the time, and, and he would sometimes ask his students, why are you a Christian? Why are you a Christian? And, you know, his students would say, well, you know, I, I grew up going to church, and I heard the gospel, and uh, I decided to follow Jesus in my life. And, and, and so he would then ask, well, why did you go to church? Well, you know, my parents went to church, and, and they were Christians. Well, why were they Christians? Well, uh, their parents, I guess, took them to church, and, and and, and so he would have some students who go, well, you know, I, I, I grew up in a home that uh, my parents didn't know Jesus. I never heard the gospel. And then I, I had this friend in school, and he told me about Jesus. And I started going to this thing in college. And, and so he said, well, 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 why did that happen? And, and, and our view can be one of two things. Our, our view can either be that those things are all just happenstance, that those things are all just chance, and, and God kind of knows that they will happen, but he's just, he's just we'll see what happens, right? Or, or God's actually moving and acting in our world to accomplish his will for his glory. Because his plans will not be thwarted. His will will not be thwarted. And if our view is that God's just kind of letting things play out and we'll see what happens, how does that square with the notion that that there's no way that God goes, wait a second, that's not what I wanted. This isn't going according to plan. And then we can easily arrive at the notion that sending the Messiah, sending Christ was some kind of plan B. You know, as if God had like, in the very beginning, he made everything perfect in the way that it should be. And then, oh, I I didn't foresee that these these two, this man and this woman, were going to totally disobey me and sin and and rebel against me and that that was just going to throw the whole thing into chaos. Do you really think God had no clue or do you think God knew and that God is active and moving and working and his plans will come to fruition and his will will come to fruition and that Jesus was not some kind of strange plan B or C, that this is the plan. So let me wrap up here. One primary closing thought for today, and we're going to spend the next few weeks on this chapter. So if you're coming away with questions today, um, we're going to be digging into this more. We said last week that part of Paul's point in talking about God's predestining and electing work was that for those who are in Christ, that, that we're more than conquerors, our future is secured, nothing can separate us. And listen, that should bring us great contentment. That should bring us great peace in our lives. If these things that Paul are saying, is saying are true, and God's already, it's like he's already done this. It's secured. It's sealed. 
Then she'd be like this. <sighs> right? It's not maybe in the future. It's not if all of these other things fall into place. No, it is. He is. I am. He has done it. He has sealed it. And look, he's making the same case regarding God's sovereignty. Verse 16 So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That's great news for us, guys. It doesn't depend on me. It doesn't depend on my ability to be good enough. It doesn't depend on my ability to somehow be moral enough or righteous enough. It's all his work. It's always all been his work. And it is all his grace. And that doesn't make you some kind of robot who's being controlled. No, no, no. That makes you a recipient of his grace. It makes you a recipient of something you don't deserve, something I don't deserve. All right. Let me stop there for today. We're going to continue to talk about these things in the weeks to come. And um, let's go to him in prayer this morning. Because if you're sitting there feeling like, man, I don't understand all this stuff. You, you are not alone. And, and listen, I don't, I don't claim to have a complete grasp on the mechanics of how all of this works. How God does what he does. Why God does what he does. Guys, God is mysterious. What we do, though, is we look at his word. We look at scripture. And we try to come away with an understanding of who he is based on those things. And and so based on what we're reading today, based on the writing of Paul, based on the context of things, based on the other scriptures we read this morning even, right? God coming to Moses going, no, I've chosen you. You're the one who's going to go do this. Here's how it's going to work. I've put Pharaoh in that position of power because I know you're going to go to him and then this is going to happen and and my people are going to be set free Man, God's, God's got this whole thing mapped out. I don't understand that in the least. But let's go to him in prayer this morning and ask him through his spirit to help us open our eyes and ears and mind to know him more and love him in a deeper way. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. And Father, I confess that as I read some of these things, it can be so difficult And yet we know, we know things about you from the word. We know that you are good. We know that you are a good father. We know that you are holy, that you are just. And that you are also a God of incredible grace and mercy. And for Paul and hopefully for all of us, Father, the, the realization of your grace and mercy is the person of Jesus Christ. That that's like the proof of that for us. Help us to find rest and peace in you. Help us to lean on the cross as our source of hope in the midst of pandemics and hurricanes and illnesses and hospital stays and destroyed homes, and the whole bit, Father. May we, like Paul, adopt this attitude that it doesn't matter 
what life throws at me right now because, God, you've already ordained for me what is to come. Help us to trust you in that. Help us to find peace and rest in that. Grow us and shape us and mold us, and may we be a people who are obedient to the leading of your Spirit, God. We love you. We thank you for this time. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Stand with us as we sing.